Open your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 18, 24. As a reminder, it's a letter written to a group of um, probably a relatively small church of um, Jewish believers who were cast out of the synagogues, lost the official protection of the sanction of Rome, and had um, experienced plundering of their property, the loss of friendship and family, and were being persecuted, and there was uh, Nero to come. Um, to persecute them even more in the future so that this letter is written particularly initially to that group to um, comfort them, to secure them and where they are and who they are despite of outward things they may see that might make them think God is not in control and maybe they made a mistake leaving their other life um, and also to prepare them for future suffering. And so it does the same for us. And so let us, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that through the preaching of your word that, that, it, that the preaching would be accurate. Uh, I would have your holy unction to be able to preach, that the people would hear, um, give close attention to the words of life and truth, and that we all would be made more like your son, Jesus. Um, and for those who do not know you and are rejecting you, we pray that this would be um, a word of conviction and that you would use this as the gospel goes forth to accomplish your purposes as you've promised and we pray that we would sit in the truth of not being ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation so we pray your power upon the reading and preaching and hearing of your word today and pray this in Christ's name amen Hebrews chapter 12 beginning of verse 18 the word of the Lord for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel the word of the Lord. And so when you look at verse 18, again, since this is written originally, the original reading audience was a group of Jewish believers who knew their Old Testament. They didn't call it that. It's just the scriptures. We call it the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they were very much aware of what this is talking about. And so we may not be quite as aware of what it's talking about, but um, if you want to to go back and read it, it's the, the announcement of the law on Mount Sinai, where God himself comes down. The Ten Commandments are given later, but God comes down um, with great power and fear, and you're not supposed to touch the mountain at all. Um, and this is in, let's see, Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter Four is my guess. I had it written down, but I'm pretty sure that's where they are. But when you look this up, you, you see the account 
of exactly what he's saying. So when God is coming down, they're giving the law. God says, you know, approach, but don't let anybody touch the mountain. But Moses is called to go up, and Aaron is called to go up, and the priests are called after they're cleansed to be able to come forward. But unless you are made holy by God, you could not approach. And it was fearful to see God come down because Mount Sinai, this part of these verses, represents the law and holiness and judgment, the fearsome wrath of God in the Old Covenant. So that they needed to recognize the fact that there is a distance between us and God, that you cannot approach his holiness if you are not holy. And if any person or beast touched, they were to be killed. They were to be shot with an arrow. They were to be stoned to death. So it was serious business. And when people saw this and they heard trumpets blasting, and most likely there were heavenly trumpets. And so it was one of these times when God manifests himself um, visibly in some way. And you approach this physical mountain and these physical stone tablets and, and, and all of these things. And it was fearsome. And there was judgment. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling them is basically, I know you're going through a lot and I know it's a fear of man and I know there's lots of things that can go on, but you have no idea of the holiness and wrath of God. You're not a clue of this. And this image that we see in the Old Testament of the people approaching the mountain of God in the law begins to show even Moses himself, who was a holy man before God, he said, I tremble with fear before a holy God, demonstrating himself in this way. But in verse 22, the writer takes this turn. And he says, but, as we said, y'all before, y'all, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So again, for our ears, that we might would know what Mount Zion is. Mount Zion is right outside of Jerusalem. It's where the temple was placed. It's where the altar of God was, the, the Ark of the Covenant, all of these things. And it's also on another hill there was where the king had his, his palace. And so when you're reading in the Old Testament, it'll talk about Mount Zion and Jerusalem and my holy hill and these things. And it's all put together with this is the presence of God among man. And it's gracious. He's close. He's near. He's there. So you've got these two mountains that are talking about. One being, if you want to be under the law, if you want to go back to not having Jesus Christ, if that's what you want, then you have Mount Sinai. Law, holiness, justice, judgment, Old Covenant distance, but in Mount Zion you have the gospel, holiness, judgment too, but we'll look at that, but you have the new covenant and that makes the difference, and we have nearness, and that's what he's telling the people and he's telling us, remember when your faith is shaken, when your uh, world seems troubled, that the world has not seen anything compared to the trouble that's going to come when God's wrath is displayed. And that you need to be reminded of the fact that we have a holy God, but we've come to Mount Zion. And what a blessing it is and where we are. And he lists all these different things that are really amazing. So it starts in verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. 
Now, let's just first, it's a city. Now, when we think of a city, it's like, well, I'm not sure I want to go to the city of the living God. I might prefer to go to a nice little town out there where, where he is. That's what I want. But you got to get your mind into the social context, the cultural context in which it's written. A city was a place of permanence. You're not wandering anymore. We were traveling in the tent and uh, following the cloud and the pillar of fire, and you, you're, you are you're established. This is a good thing. You have a home have walls around you. You have a king who's protecting you. This is security. This is safety. This is, this is that home desire that we would want. So you don't think city, I mean some people love the city, but it's not quite the same concept. Okay, and we have this city of the living God. This is his city. Um, the Jerusalem in the, Old, in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament here, it's called the city of David, the city of the king. And now it's called the city of the living God. The living God. It's a very interesting word. It's not the city of God. It could have been the city of God. Why well, put the living God in there? And it's obviously because the Holy Spirit wants us to, to listen to that word, the living God. He is alive. He is active. He is powerful. This is his city. And so what city are we talking about? Some people literally believe that we're talking about the United States of America. Okay? Let me, I don't think anybody has that false belief, but it ain't talking about that. Okay? Whatever else it may be talking about, that's not it. No physical city, town, nation on earth. He is talking very clearly about the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're talking spiritual stuff. The city of the living God, the church. And not just Second Street, but the, we're all a part of the church. We're connected by the Holy Spirit. It is a city. And what does that mean? Remember what this means about what he's saying about what the church is. It is a city. We are connected. Let's see, I actually wrote, where did I put that? Man, I'll tell you what, there's nothing, well, I put it on Facebook. But, Nothing frustrates me more than bad theology. But the second thing that frustrates me is when I write something down and can't remember where I wrote it. So this is one of those times. I see where I wrote it right here in my notes. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. So our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul's writing this. So we're, we're fellow citizens. And in Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are dwelling with, hidden in, the city of the living God. We are the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's, that's, that's really good because what we see at times and what we see the world trying to promote more and more right now is enemies. And everybody wants to say what side you're on. And unfortunately, you have the church being divided up into camps, and they can be opposed to each other. We have to be careful of that because we're supposed to be members of this city. You talk about, and, and, and yes, he built a wall around it, okay? Keep the bad guys out. And I'm not, don't, don't do what politics have done with this. Be aware that our city, if you're not in our city outside, the city are evildoers, people who choose to live against God and attack the church. But we're protected. We're living in a city. We're good. We can speak boldly. We can live our lives as we want. 
We can even go outside the walls of the city because it's a spiritual city. So wherever we walk in the world, we're still in the city. So maybe I contradicted myself, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? Everywhere we go in the world, we're protected. We're in our city because it's spiritual. And that's to give us great comfort that we have a living God. And it also insinuates that he is involved in our lives. It's not a deistic God that's up there and he's not paying attention. And you like, we yell loud enough. It's like Horton hears a who. Finally, somebody hears us up there. It's like, no, he's more intimately involved than we are. It is he who tries to get us to hear him. And when we finally hear him by the instigation of his Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts, then that motivates us to change. And then that's supposed to be the light that's in this world. A city set on a hill. And then we continue, and it says, and to innumerable angels. And I love the word in Greek, actually. That's where we get our word, myriad. A myriad of angels. It actually means ten thousands. Ten thousands of ten thousands of angels. And it's just because they didn't have the movie Elf yet, because it would be a gazillion angels. Is that where that comes from? What's that come from? Think about what? Ginormous. Oh, <laughs> Where's gozillion come from? I must have made that up. That's mine. A gozillion. It's a bunch. A, innumerable. What? Forrest Gump. He said gozillion. I think it was me. Anyway, so, and innumerable. The ESV did a good job by saying innumerable. And innumerable. But it's that word myriads. It just has that sound to it. So it's this innumerable number of angels. Okay, so that's something... The angels came down at the announcement to the shepherds, and there was like a host of heaven, heavenly hosts, which just means um, armies. And we have that word in Hebrew, Yahweh Sabiath. And Sabiath means um, host or armies. And so God is the God of an innumerable number of angels who are in different levels involved in the work of heaven and involved in the work of earth, but it is an innumerable number, and that's where we are. So not all, only are we in the city of the living God, which we have come to, but we've also come to an innumerable number of angels in festal, I'm sorry, in festal gathering. And that word that's translated festal gathering there is the word that's used particularly in the Greek culture when they would have their... Um, like the pre-Olympic stuff. It was almost a, a worship practice where everybody would come and they would gather for this um, a festival ceremony type event, this big thing. So they've all come to this to see the church, the angels, when they see the workings of God that we're involved in. I mean, we're slugging away and we're just like, eh, we're nasty and dirty and give up so easy and we say all these things and the angels are up there just amazed at what God's doing with us and the writer just wants us to see you guys you all need to know who you are you need to know where you are you need to understand the heavenly reality that's around you constantly it's this world that's cursed not the city of God so we have this ability to interface with this world while we're living in this heavenly reality that's out here but while we're interfacing with this reality, we tend to think that's all there is. It's really a strange thing, but it's very natural because it, we're fleshly too. 
That's why we're told walk in the spirit, walk in faith, walk in this other reality, knowing that your battle's not against flesh and blood. Stop that. Your battle is against principalities and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. They're, they're enemies in the spiritual places. So what kind of armor does God tell us to put on? Spiritual armor. So if you're in a spiritual battle, you need spiritual armor. And when you read where this comes from in Isaiah, the idea of spiritual armor, he is the armor. His own right hand protects us. He is our shield. He is our buckler. He is our helmet. He is our salvation. All the armor you have is because you're hidden in Christ. But he does tell you to pick it up and put it on. Because we, he, he works with us in this way. And there is an innumerable number of angels and festal, festal we don't use that word. That's where we get the word festival from. In this gathering of hosts that if we could see it, we would fall down and even worship them. And they'd be like, no, 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 we're fellow servants. And then in the 23, he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now we get this world word assembly, which you may have a little footnote written there and it says or church which is you know which is odd because church comes from a latin word so they're not going to take us to the english they're going to make us say church because that's the word we use all the time but it comes from a greek word and y'all know what the greek word is who knows that one what ek ekklesia there you go Clisis to call ek out to be called out so we're the, it's an assembly of people who've been called out in ekklesia so it is the church it's the church of the firstborn, and the firstborn is Jesus Christ. The firstborn is the one that gets to inherit everything. The firstborn is the one uh, that gets everything. And so now we are also called the firstborn because we are in Christ, and therefore we get to inherit everything too. So this deep connection with Jesus Christ is where he's pointing us, and it's, it, it's actually going in a direction here. So as you see, we have this, it starts out where it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then an innumerable number of angels. So we have this heavenly reality with these guys all watching. And then the, to the assembly, now us, we have the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And uh, Revelation talks about the Lamb's book of life. And so we're enrolled, our names are written in that book or, or name, before the foundation of the world our names are in this book and then we come to God the judge of all now that one can take you in a different direction all of a sudden we go from wow this is great this is awesome and, and, and then God the judge because that was sort of the problem at Mount Sinai was this judge coming down this holy God God's still holy we have the the living God is his city that was the God that put fear in everybody at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai. And here he is again as the judge of all. And Hebrews has talked about this some more. So go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. And you know I'm going to tell you to go all the way back to number to verse 11. Because it's got to be in context. And this is a good, good verses. They're all good verses. Hebrews 4, 11. 
therefore, let, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, that's fearful. Okay, so you, you will give an account and there will be no excuses. You will be naked. You will be exposed to the eyes of him to whom you give an account. So you may have even come up with things in your mind that give you justification and you've self-justified, you've self-forgiven, you've made excuses, excuses, excuses. But all those will be completely stripped away and you'll be before the eyes of a holy God who will just say, no, let me tell you the truth and you'll have no, nowhere to hide. And so, and so we continue with this concept. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Hebrews 9:27 and just as it is appointed for man to die once so forget this reincarnation stuff okay just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him so now we're getting this concept of judgment but also a savior so this is this is giving us a little bit of hope here all right so now we have a savior you're going to have the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and then we go to the hebrews 10:31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we'll even back up go to verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there's this warning. There's a judge. It's about Sinai is real. There is judgment. There is wrath. There is holiness. There is a judge. You will be judged. And so we have to say, you know, I'm going to be at Mount Sinai praying for the mountain to fall on me. You can't even touch it. We're shaking with fear. He's like, believers. You're in Mount Zion. Even in verse, chapter 10, verse 39, he says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we're in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, surrounded by myriads of angels. We're in the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and then we come before God, the judge of all, and then we get another look at us and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That, that's what you should have on your refrigerator because that's who we are and who we will be. So, and look at this too. It's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And I really, I think you could go either way with it, but I like that it doesn't say the spirit, the saints, those who have set apart, who have been made righteous. It's like, you're righteous. 
And why are you righteous? Because you're covered in Christ. You're, you're, you're righteous because you've been justified, which is what that word means, by Christ. But you can be made perfect. And that word perfect is to tell I omenon, to tell I omenon, which means it's an ongoing thing to tell I, it's what Jesus said on the cross, to tell us die which is, it is finished, but it's a future perfect, which means it has been finished now and for all time. It's completely done. I have eaten the cake. It, it, don't go looking for it. It's gone. It's done. I have done it. I have done it completely. I have finished what I've come to accomplish on the cross. What God's purpose for us will be perfected in heaven. The righteous will be made perfect. So when you stand before God, the judge, you will stand before him righteous and perfect. All of our sin will have been burned up, taken away in Christ, done away with, clothed in him, clothed in his righteousness. We will stand before God the judge in perfection. But there will be others who will be judged. He is God the judge. So recall and remember the fact that when you're seeing difficulties and we're seeing persecutions or we're seeing trials, tribulations, sinners attacking, doing whatever it is, that God's going to set all things right and there will be a day of judgment. And these people are not our enemies. These people are people that we pray for. These people are people we're called to love. We're called to love our enemies. So that means winning political battles isn't what they need. They need you to win them with the gospel. So that's what you have to win people with is the gospel. It doesn't mean you don't fight political battles. It doesn't mean you don't get engaged in this stuff as we seek to make the world a better place. But you be careful that you realize that your primary mission here on earth is to make followers of Jesus Christ, not to make followers of our particular political ideologies. The problems that we see happening in the history of the world are when people follow worldly leaders as if they are gods. They are not. They are men. And God at times tells us to follow and submit to governments and the leaders. But you do so understanding it's because we have a higher order and we live in a different city. That we have, uh, we have greater things at work in us. And the greatest thing that God has for us to do today is to share the gospel and make disciples. Preach the gospel. In season, out of season make disciples it's very difficult especially in, in this world imagine if the church if all believers are barred from twitter oh my goodness i barred myself from twitter it wasn't long into it i realized that place is not somewhere that i can operate <laughs> no so i find my little hole in the wall on facebook where i'm able to put people to aggravate me to sleep. They go away for 30 days. You know, I can unfriend people without them knowing it. <laughs> you can do all these things where you're able to sit there and just be as much of a jerk or as much of a happy guy or much of a gospel, whatever you want to do, you can do it right there and you think you're communicating with people and you're not. You're just somehow interfacing with digital things online that may or may not be attached to people. Make sure because our younger generation who has grown up with our faces in our phones and us taking constant pictures. When I grew up, it was like the video camera was new. The 
I guess it's the film thing. And my daddy had one of those film things, and he was so frustrated because I'd be would be running around and swinging, and he'd want to take a, a film, and as soon as he did, we'd stop. He's like, "Well, you're supposed to be moving now because you got a, a moving thing." So that was my generation. This generation now is like, they're going to grow up sick of this stuff. Okay, they want face to face. There've been lots of studies with these things, and what you're going to have is people, thank God, who are going to come up in this much younger generation who are going to want actual FaceTime. They want to see you put down that and look at them. Show me I'm important by spending time with me. And this is what God is saying. You are important because you live in my city. I am the living God. I am here with you. I hear you. I love you. I'm next to you. I'm near you. There are angels that are celebrating the fact that you're here. We live in that reality because if we don't live in that reality, you'll live in Satan's reality and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we might have life. And then we get to 24. And the, in, in Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, um, they do the word or, word order things like Yoda. It tries to put the important word, like the word order matters in Greek. In English, as long as you kind of get it right, you know, you know, did the boy hit the ball, the ball hit the boy. Is the, they can change it around. So you have the importance. And in Greek it is, the mediator of a new, you've come to the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus. And they kind of do it like that. Typically, if you want to put Jesus in the, in the primary spot, you put him at the beginning of the sentence. But they do it a little bit differently here because what they want you to see, the author wants you to see here is, we're talking about a new covenant. That's the important part, a new covenant. And who's this mediator? Jesus. Which is also interesting because he uses the name Jesus and not Christ. Christ means king, anointed one. This is the man Jesus. He was fully God, truly God, truly man. And this is the man Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of the old covenant was Moses. He represented the people. So how does Jesus get to mediate this new covenant? Because he's not just a mediator either. He's also the sacrifice. He, his blood is this covenant. But he's the mediator too. The mediator is the one who represents the people before God and God before the people. And that's what Jesus does. He's also called the second Adam. So the first Adam, everybody is represented by Adam until you come out of that family and you're adopted into God's family and you're represented by Jesus Christ. So anybody who's not a believer in Christ is still in Adam and in Adam all die when you come to faith in God you are now in Christ he you're hidden in him you he is your head he is our body he represents us completely Jesus represents us before God and he represents God to us so that we're able to pray directly to the father through him not through any other priest or any other way we're able to pray directly but with Jesus as our mediator of a new covenant and covenants are important because a, the, God set up the, the, the way to interpret scripture, scripture properly is to look at the nature of covenants in scripture and to see it developing throughout and these covenants that he's particularly talking about here is a covenant that a king would make with other subjects or lesser kings and he would say um, I am I am the best king there ever was. He, he just renounces all the stuff that he has. And then I will protect you as long as you do these things. Now, 
you do these things, I'll do these things. And what they have, they would then cut a covenant. They would take an animal or something and they would kill it, shed its blood and say, if I, whoever violates this covenant, if I fail to live up to my part, if you fail to live up to your part, blood will be spilled, which is why circumcision was a covenant in the Old Testament, because blood would be spilled. If you violate, you are cut off. And then it talks about the circumcision of Christ being what we're saved by, which means his blood being shed for us. So these are covenant promises made by God, and he sprinkles his blood, and his blood has been shed. Man's blood in Christ, those who are in Christ, his blood has been shed, so there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're saved by the blood of Christ. Christ. And he does this thing here that's really neat. He says, and that blood that is sprinkled, and it was sprinkled on the book of the law and the people. It was a way that you, you, you made this promise that we, we will do everything the law says. But now Jesus' blood has been sprinkled. Jesus' blood has been shed. And it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is Genesis 4.10. Um, where God says, you know, Cain has killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of him, because God saw his faith as righteous and didn't have faith himself and would not accept him. And he says, you know, sin's crouching at the door for you, um, Cain. You need to do what's right and you'll be accepted. But Abel's faith was being accepted as righteous because he was able to give right sacrifices from faith. So Cain, out of jealousy, um, kills Abel. And then God comes up, and he's like, you know, what have you done? And, you know, where is your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? And then God says this in, in Genesis 4.10, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I mean, naked, naked and exposed before God. Came knowing what he did, still angry about it, probably feeling like he's not even that sorry about it from the way he's looking at things. What did you think was going to happen? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And if righteous Abel, if his blood shed, cries out to God from the ground, imagine Jesus' blood crying out to God from the heavens for us, for us. And that's what he's saying. We have a mediator, better than Moses, the better covenant, better blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. You have the righteous and holy God who came down on the mountain and struck great fear into all the people. And he dies for us. He sheds his blood for us. He adopts us into his family. He brings us into his, into his presence. We're living in a, in a city set on a hill, spiritual Jerusalem. These things are too grand for us even to imagine, the closeness that we have. And then when we die and we wake up in heaven and you see all this stuff, that's awesomeness. So we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We look forward to that. But we also love, hopefully, the right things here. But if you love the world too much, 
it will draw you away from God. So you have to be very careful to these things. And then next week, as we go forward, we'll see that he's saying you need to, you need to worship God. You need to be grateful that you've received a kingdom that can't be shaken. We need to have the right spiritual attitude to these things because if you get your head out of the game, you're going to get focused on something else. And next thing you know, I mean, I've seen movies, sports movies, you know, and somebody's, you know, they've got something's about to happen, but they, they're, somebody's waving at them in the audience, and they're, hey, and they get hit in the head with a ball or something. That's what happens. So we got to be careful about being too distracted by these things. And then we come to the Lord's table in just a minute. He says, this blood is the new, this is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is, I'm calling you to not only be in the city and have the living God judge, but you're, you're with me. I love you. I'm giving myself to you. I want you at my table. I'm spiritually present with you. My body has been given for you. My blood has been given for you. You're renewing this covenant. I love you. You love me. I want to be near you. I want you to be near me. It's not like you aggravate Jesus by coming to him. He loves for you to come to him. He desires you to come to him. He loves to love you. He loves to forgive you. He loves to be gracious to us. But outside of Christ, there is, there is judgment. Because somebody has to pay for sin. And it's either going to be you standing naked in shame before God, or it's going to be Jesus Christ who lovingly sacrificed himself for his people. So let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to live in this spiritual reality, that you would teach us to, when we come to your table, to your supper, this isn't this is, this is a, a covenantal meal. This is something that you've done. And you've said there's grace in it, that you're meeting with us, that you feed us spiritually. You're like, this is the gospel. The gospel is not just about authority. It's also about power. You don't just tell us what to do. You enable us to do it. And so that's why you give us food to eat, wine to drink, to say, listen, it's not just external things. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You are our life. You are our God. You are our king. You are our brother. Help us to, to be more intimate with you, that we would be very grateful that you have no phone, no camera, no mechanical device that draws you away. Nothing. But you deal with us face to face you love us to be in your presence you rejoice in us and you are helping us to learn to rejoice more and more in you so we thank you and pray this in jesus name amen